Speaking Soundly is your backstage pass to today's biggest stars on the biggest stages from the worlds of opera, orchestral music and more. Host Metropolitan Opera Principal Trumpet David Krauss sits down with Rufus Wainwright, Joyce DiDonato, Winter Marsalis, Emmanuel Axe, Ray Chen, Marin Olsip, Ibrahim Malouf, and other superstars as they speak about their lives and creative processes. Speaking Soundly gives new perspectives and never-heard-before stories from renowned musicians, conductors, composers and singers. Catch the latest episodes wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Instagram at speakingsndly. For more info about the podcast, check out artfulnarrativesmedia.com. is really, really great. They serve up musical wordplay. Tim's luscious locks and shiny plate make the very best of mates. So welcome to the pod. Sam has the news. Tim has reviews. Welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. Returning to your ears for the first time this year. We hope you've got your popcorn ready. Today's episode has a film music bent as Sam unwraps Carter Burwell's score to the Banshees of Inishirin. We also chat Oscar nominations, German model trains and our least favourite topless dictator. If you're sitting comfortably, let us begin. The 2023 Oscar nominations are in, Sam. Ooh, tell me more. A little later, we'll be dipping into Carter Burwell's score for The Banshees of Inner Sheeran, mm-hmm. which is up for an award, of course. Before that, which musical legend, as of this week's announcements, holds the record for being the most Oscar-nominated living person? That's a very good question. Um, I was reading this week that Petro Tool has the most living has the most acting nominations, but he is neither living mm. nor a musician. He did, but great eyes nonetheless. I deny you. Uh, I feel like Alan Menken has a lot, but surely this is John Williams. Mm-hmm. And uh, I watched him a little clip of him recording the first Star Wars soundtrack this week, and the man's a great conductor as well. Is he? Yeah, just really. Focused and demanding. It's not something he gets credit for, really, is it? Well, maybe I, I could be wrong. It's not something I've ever heard him get credit for, I should yeah. say. Underrated. He has 52 nominations to his name, I should say. The mm. first of which came in 1968 for Valley of the Dolls, which I've not seen. No, neither. Sam, can you name his four Oscar wins? Ah, oh, I feel like people will be shouting this at their devices. Um, I would guess Jaws. Yep. Um... I would give him one for Jurassic Park because I love it. No. Really? Oh. Um, he'll have got one for Schindler's List. Yep. E.T. Yep. Star Wars. Yep. Just instantly, any ideas who dead or alive has won the most Oscars ever? Um, no. Disney. Is it Alan? Comma Walt. 
Oh, yeah, well, fair enough. Another incidentally, Steven Spielberg has confirmed plans for a documentary on John Williams' life, which is something to look out for. Mm. Now, we've all got very excited about Todd Field's tar, yes. Sam. Tar. 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 What classical music-themed movies are also set for release in 2023? Well, I've seen a press image of R. Bradley Cooper as mm-hmm. Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Bernstein? Bernstein. With a questionable prosthetic nose. Yeah, that yeah. Sparks a little some bit debate. of uh, thinking on that. There is one more. Uh, Chevalier. Chevalier. Stephen Williams, which inspired by the story of 18th century violinist and composer Joseph Bologna, oh, Chevalier cool. de Saint-Georges. A quick fire Bologna round. Which US <laughs> president described Bologna as the most accomplished man in Europe? Ooh, well, um, Bologna was spent most of his life in France. I'm going to guess Jefferson, because he spent his life in France. No, John Adams. Ah. Oh. <laughs> in which French overseas region was Bologna born? I do teach this to year five, so nice. I think it's Guadeloupe. Correct. What sport in particular did he excel at? Uh, I also know this. He was a master fencer. He served as a colonel in the Légion des Américains et du Midi, a regiment described as comprising citizens of colour, with the father of which French novelist? It's good to see you've been using this time off to study your French. Mm-hmm. It's superb. Um, I also know this. Look at me go. I think this is because of the Nutcracker episode we did. It's Alexander Dumas' dad, correct? Isn't it? Because he correct. wrote the Three Musketeers and the Nutcracker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe one of the Three Musketeers was based on. Oh. Well, I mean, none of them are anything other than white fellas. So mm. Probably not. Probably not. What was his official cause of death in 1799? Gout. <laughs> An ulcerated bladder. Mm. The film stars Kelvin Harrison Jr. in the title role, who listeners may remember from 12 Years a Slave, and Lucy Boynton of Bohemian Rhapsody (laughs) fame as the doomed Marie Antoinette. That's set for release on the 21st of April, so everyone pop that in your calendars. Sam, can you tell me what Guinness World Record is being set in this audio recording? Think niche. It, uh, well, it's clearly Bill Bailey's wedding toast. The toastiest toast of all time. <laughs> no, it's actually the longest melody played by a model train. Right. Yeah, recorded in a model railway attraction in Hamburg. The model steamer can be heard playing a 2,840-note medley of classical hits as it chugs through various handcrafted scenes. And yet, none of those tunes are Do the Locomotion by Kylie Minogue. Mm. Is that a Kylie song? I think so. Moving on. What has become the latest UK cultural venue to cut ties with British Petroleum? I think it's the Royal Opera House. Correct. The oil giant's sponsorship has ended after 33 years, following in the footsteps of the National Portrait Gallery and Royal Shakespeare Company, both of which have also cut ties. But which big-name institution is still clinging on? As in big-name artistic institution. Yeah, still got sponsorship. National Theatre? British Museum, apparently. Wow. Yeah. They've taken from everywhere else they can't stop being moral now no yes exactly Sam can you give me your briefest of thoughts on the issue like a like a 20 second mini clip Ooh, okay to yeah. play I mean first of all to play devil's advocate some may argue that BP's sponsorship has enabled thousands around the country to see free opera and ballet through its BP big screens yes that is good briefest thought um, money has to come from somewhere if an admirably vocal and committed minority can get an oil giant to cut ties 
maybe they could convince governments, or indeed voters, to support funding the arts out of taxes. Very good, very concise. Thank you. While we're on opera, which controversial soprano had to be protected by five police vans five. during her recent performance at the Vienna State Opera? God, I can't imagine seeing five police vans anywhere in London at the moment. There are, uh, well, it has to be Anna Trebko, old Correct. Two-Face with a... Yes, know. the Russian singer who holds an Austrian passport, has actually twice condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and sort of loosely distanced herself from Putin last year. Still, 15 protesters turned out to air their disapproval. One last question. How did Netrebko describe Putin in 2011? Did she call him a big chunky bear or a, or a fan of Salisbury Cathedral's architecture? <laughs> Was yet. he uh, a no, lost Hemsworth on, brother? You're on the right lines. Uh, a very attractive man. Such a strong male energy. <laughs> Mm. Uh, some good news to finish two world-class musicians have announced they're having babies so a warm classical pod congrats to us mm. conductor karina kanalakis and french georgian pianist katia buniashvili some high level nursery singing going on there for sure you got to pick a pocket or two Richard Strauss's tone poem, Death and Transfiguration, written in 1889-90. John Williams's score to Superman, written in 1978. Got to pick a pocket or two. I'm sorry, Tim. I just don't like you no more. You do like me, Sam. I don't. But you liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. Well, now, I just have this tremendous sense of time slipping away on me, Tim. And I think I need to spend the time I have left thinking and composing. Just trying not to listen to any more of the dull things that you have to say for yourself. But I am sorry about it. I am like. And scene. Good rehearsal. Very good rehearsal. Oh, Very yeah, good. It's not rivaling in Bruges yet. But Banshees of East Dulwich is at least up and running. Now, what did you want me to analyse this week, Timber? Well, I thought Carter Burwell's Oscar-nominated soundtrack for Martin McDonagh's disturbing fairy tale of male friendship, The Banshees of Inishirin, might make a good subject. So it would. Would it help everyone to hear a micro-synopsis of the film? Surely our discerning audience have been to their local picture house or everyman for an art house evening of beard-scratching, craft ale-drinking and perfecting the art of looking thoughtful into the middle distance. But just in case they haven't, here's a quick micro-sized, microwaved synopsis. Set on a tiny fictional island off of Ireland against the backdrop of the 1923 Irish Civil War. Patrick, played by an affable handsome man Colin Farrell, who you have seen in Alexander. If you're a real fan, you might even have caught his now rarely mentioned leaked sex tape. Patrick calls on his pal Colm, embodied by that most handsome of ginger anvils, Brendan Gleeson. At the usual time, to knock off work and to go to the pub. 
Calm ignores his younger friend and continues practicing the violin. Eventually we discover that Calm has decided to discard his friendship in order to focus on his composing, trying to create something that lasts. Padraig refuses to agree to these terms and keeps pestering his pal until Calm says every time Padraig calls on him, he will cut off one of his fingers. Things inevitably escalate and Calm ends up a few digits short of a high five. The film ends with Padraig having burnt down Calm's house in retaliation. Patrick returns Calm's dog, whom he'd kept safe, and Calm thanks him for they both reiterate that the dispute is very much ripe and open. <gasps> Let's just call it quits. We won't call it quits. Nice synopsizing. It's like a Russian short story set on a tiny Irish island. Dostoevsky. Also, it's good just to see the film, though, so do that. It's on Disney Plus now, so you don't even have to have a hoppy beer or beard to stroke to get in. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the music. Writer-director Martin Madonna and American composer Carter Burwell have worked together on all of Madonna's films, so the relationship is embedded and it's hard to work out sometimes where the musical decisions have come from. But it's worth knowing that Madonna said to Burwell he hated the idea of any diddle-dee old-world Irish film music being in the score. Mm, and yet we do get folk influences, they're just not from Ireland. We do, as part of a triangle of musical influences. On this triangle, we have, I reckon, folkish or culturally specific sounds, high art music, and lower, more childlike musical influences. High, low, chicolo? High, low, folkish. Folkish, or at least sounds that feel like they pull to a specific people or culture, just not Ireland. For instance, the first music we hear is this amazing sound from the Bulgarian state television female voice choir. Don't you just know from the way it's sung that this is the music of the people performing it? The performance reeks of ownership, localness, specificity of culture. But is hard to place in some ways. I certainly couldn't have called what the language was, and the tonality and rhythmic feel shifts keep me disorientated. And you've actually been to Bulgaria. Remember those breakfasts? Yeah, I think that was a different analogy for some other piece. Mm -hmm, yep. Even that hyper-forward, teethy sound of the vowels in this piece is something that takes us away from a lot of Western classical singing. Yeah, the music makes us feel this story is specific to somewhere, but not necessarily 1923 Ireland. No, exactly. I think it's signalling to us that we're already in the realms of allegory, parable, folk story. Legend. Thanks, pal. The words, though not understood by most of us, do hint at the forthcoming action. Mm, that was Polonia et Tadora, which translates roughly as... Tadora was taking a nap... O maiden Tadora, Tadora, underneath a tree, an olive tree, a wind blew a north wind. It snapped off an olive branch, so that Tadora woke up, and she angrily scolded it, and she angrily scolded it. Unwanted wind, why now did you decide to blow? Why indeed, wind? Why, Colm, did you decide to no longer be friends all of a sudden? Well, because he wants to knuckle down. Pun. <laughs> and get on with his composing. <laughs> Which is where we do actually get a bit of Irish fiddly-diddle music. Mm -hmm, we do. The tune is written by actor Brendan Gleeson and is called The Banshees of Inisherin. Same as the film. Coincidence? I think not. He's obviously got some music in him. Yep, here he is playing the mandolin on Saturday Night Live. And I think what Gleeson has created for Colm is pretty interesting. I think it's deliberately... A little bit bad. A bit bad. But it's kind of angular, disjointed and immemorable. 
Sounds like Gavin Williamson rather than a folk song. Absolutely. I think Gleason has characterised Colm as aspirational, but not necessarily a very good composer. Yeah, the style helps set the folkloric tenor of the film, but now we're into the weeds of characterization. And that's where we're thinking about high and low art. As defined by 19th century poet and pioneering noddy holder impersonator Matthew Arnold, author of Dover Beach and coiner of Pull Out All the Stops. Oh, Timbo, very good knowledge. The very same concepts of high and low. Lots of different ways to think about high and low art. Perhaps one way is that high reflects and comments upon a culture, whilst one is the product of it. Perhaps one way to think of high culture is like a chunky Merlot. You grow into your relationship with it. Perhaps not liking it at first, on a first pre-teen taste, and then gradually over your life. You like it, and eventually you come to love it, espousing the merits of the grape softness and earlier ripening versus the sterner, later ripening Cabernet Sauvignon. A low-culture comparison might be Coca-Cola. It's delicious and sugary the first time you taste it, but your connoisseurship of Coke probably doesn't reach a greater depth the more that you drink it. Mm, sometimes you want an instantly refreshing Coke, and it's delicious. Sometimes you want a thought-provoking Merlot. A very broad brush, outmoded categorization would say that something like opera is a high art and that pop music is a low art. Brace for furious feedback. T.S. Eliot. Second best T.S. after T.S. to Piggity. T.S. Eliot, of all people, thought that high culture and low culture are complementary and necessary. Sometimes you want a Merlot at the opera, sometimes it's a sugary treat and a pop banger. Those competing impulses and those two musical languages are, I reckon, coded into the banshees. Colm is high art, deferring the short-term pleasures of taking an early afternoon beer with his pal. Whereas Padraig is one of the world's nice guys, but has no thoughts beyond the pleasant present. Burwell and McDonough give them different musical codings for this. Perhaps worth noting first that Padraig has no diegetic music, nothing that his character plays or sings other than a bit of tuneless mumbling here or there. All his music is in the underscore. Burwell says Padraig is accompanied by very pretty childlike instruments. Harp, glockenspiel, marimba and celeste. They're all instruments you might find in an elementary school, immediately attractive and naive in their tone production. And none of those instruments sustain, right? There's no ongoing investment in sound, it's just plonk. Again, just present tense. Plonk, not Merlot. Ha-ha. Burwell says he thought of Padraig as almost like a Disney character. He has a little miniature donkey. You can imagine little birdies flying around him, he says. And speaking of those sounds, I think you get overtones of Harry Potter and the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from the Celeste, keeping you in that fairy tale, childlike wonder tone. But it's a bit disconcerting, isn't it? That combination of childlike sounds and some of the folk tonalities and off-kilter melodic development Burwell creates. For sure. I think that unsettling ambiguity foreshadows the narrative becoming more of a Brothers Grimm kind of fairy tale than a Disney wishy-washy version. Mm. With fingers being chopped off, there are real vibes of the original Cinderella here too. The music preempts that darkness and tells us this is not a parable. We're not hearing a moralising, goodies kind of soundtrack, and it's not that kind of story. Mm -hmm. And we hear that in the low gongs going off throughout his music. Yeah, gamelan gongs, again drawing from a culturally specific music, but used here to make it all feel rather mythic, are played eight octaves down from the Celeste, just nudging the harmony around chromatically, suggesting the foundations of this dispute, this Padraic character, might be unsettled. 
Even if he is so nice he'll let the donkey in the house so he doesn't get cold, he can still be pushed into burning your house down because he's only seeing things in the present tense. Listen to the scary bass gongs going off here. Holm, on the other, increasingly fingerless hand, is capable of playing and singing music. He listens to the Irish classical tenor John McCormack on his record player and invites students over from the mainland to jam in the local pub. Colm is coded as high music, opposed to Padraig's low. There's a longer-term aspiration to him. He's prepared to suffer for his art and takes this idea to a hyperbolic level of self-damage where he makes his own violin playing worse by cutting off his own fingers. I think it's also worth returning to the idea that although he has that aspiration, he may not actually be any higher. He listens to McCormack sing, but in English rather than Italian. He writes music, but it's not necessarily any good. When he makes pronouncements on how we all remember Mozart, no one remembers people who are just nice... He gets the century of Mozart's birth wrong. Just as Patrick's music develops in depth and irony, so Colm's has traces of the simplicity of the low art left within. I think that's still going on. And what does Carter Burwell make of the idea of making music for posterity, that hypothetical future archive? In the interviews I've read, he seems to think that it's a foolish endeavour to chase that kind of permanence. Man sounds zen. The three sides of our triangle high, low, folkish, can be translated into calm, Patrick, and fairy tale context. I agree. And like a lot of the stuff that we love most, that means this film itself, and certainly its soundtrack, combine high, low, and folkish influences. Think Mahler symphonies that have incredibly heightened versions of French nursery rhymes. Frere Jacquerie in Symphony No. 1. Or Richard Thomas's Jerry Springer the Opera. John McCormack's own recitals that had Irish folk songs as well as Verdi in. Call me James Joyce because I'm a friend of T.S. Eliot's, or at least his idea that combination of high and low is where things get most exciting. And just a final note on Madonna's use of Lieder, German art song. In several of his films it's popped up. In Bruges has the amazing use of Der Leiermann from Schubert's Winterreiser. Here we get some Brahms and Strauss. And I'm not totally sure what's going on with it. Again, it helps to code the characters with a high artistic status, Arguably, Colm and Padraig are the same two sides of Madonna's brain that were represented by the Bruges hitmen Ray and Ken. But perhaps there's more to it. Something of the psychological introversions of the poems and music, and songs that hint at the mental excavation at work for Madonna. Although central voices suggest an inner life. Perhaps it's just about the beauty of the sound for him. We will have to get him on sometime. And in a way, I think the whole film and its soundtrack serves that same purpose. These two impulses, high and low, present tense, warm, cosy Colin Farrell-shaped procrastination and self-flagellating hypothetical futures that require sacrificing Brendan Gleeson's hand, these impulses are in all of us. Do I do some more violin practice or do I watch another episode of Star Trek? And Madonna has created these two voices to explore it. In the same way as leader. Sure. Imagine doing that. What? Creating two voices, scripting parts of it, sure, improvising others, maybe even with a comedic bent, exaggerating a characteristic here or there, maybe even making one fella improbably authoritative, and the other more naive, just to explore, even analyse an idea. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Hey Sam! 
I've set up a coffee donation page for the podcast. What is a coffee donation page, Tim? It's like Patreon, in that it allows people to financially support creative projects they enjoy. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a coffee, if you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. Quick couple of thank yous. Firstly, to Chris Legg for, as always, looking over us and making sure we're producing. Good job, Centipede. Love him. Uh, and thank you to Bernard Hughes for his recent composing advice, giving me a little steer on something. Mm. Always wise, Bernard. Oh, wise, Bernard. And as always, please, if you've enjoyed the Classical Music Pod, then tell your friends about us. Share, follow us, do all of those things. Disseminate us. Purposeful, purposelessness, the meaningful, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, purposeful, purposelessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, 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 meaningless, purposeful, meaningless, I should say. Classical music pod, I should say.